good morning. Please take your scriptures and open to Ephesians chapter 6. While you're turning there, sort of a something to ponder, I've often wondered, and this will sound maybe a little shocking as a, a man who's been in full-time ministry for more than 25 years, um, I've often wondered if I could abandon the institutional church and be better off. You ever wondered that? Because the church so often is not a beautiful bride as the scripture explains it. There's brokenness, there's ugliness, there's hurt, there's pain. I mean, could we be better off? And the quick answer, the simple answer is no. We will not be better off. We need each other. I need you in my life. You need me in your life. You need other shepherd elders in your life. And we all need other brothers and sisters in Christ in our life. We need each other. Even though every one of us is imperfect and fails and will probably hurt each other at some point in this journey together. Right? We need each other. This morning, I need to take the bread and I need to lift the cup to my mouth to remember Jesus' work. I need to do that. And I need to do that with you. Right? We can't, we can't really serve a huge regular meal together as they would have done during the Passover. Um, but we have symbols enough to give the picture of sharing a meal together. And I need to do that. I need to remember that my righteousness was not earned by me. I need to remember that in the, if, if, if I were just weighed in the balances for the last seven days, my thoughts, my motives, my actions, and if eternity depended on my own righteousness in the last seven days, there is no doubt I would righteously be consigned to hell. So I need to remember Christ's death this morning. I need to remember that His, His grace is a free gift. And I don't earn it any more today than I did when, when I was first born again, than I did when I was in the darkest place of my life. So we need to remember Jesus Christ, His poured out blood, His broken body. So the answer is, we need one another. We are the church. And no, we would not be better off without all the mess. Because this is where we gather together and proclaim His name and exhort one another daily while it is called the day, lest any of us be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So in Ephesians 6, in a sense, we're going to have some of these struggles that, that you and I still go through. We're going to have sort of the layers pulled back. And you're going to see something that in our sort of world, this this materialistic world that we live in is going to sound ridiculous. I want you to look at this. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The first word of this final section, and we're going to handle this in two different parts. The first word in this section is finally. Everything in Ephesians, everything in this entire letter to these believers has been moving to one dramatic finale. And this is, this is sort of how it breaks apart. 
Um, it is structured on three imperatives or three commands, but this is what we're going to see. We're going to see our source of strength. We're going to see our true enemy. And we're going to see the armor God has provided. So if you, if you pick up your Bible, your English translation of the Bible, and you start reading, you just go to, the, go to chapter 1 of the entire Bible, you don't have to read very far before you meet the main character. Matter of fact, in an, in an English translation, he is on page 1, the fourth word. In the beginning, God just assumes his existence. And he is doing something. In the beginning, God created, and what did he create? I mean, I, I see young children raising their hands. Go ahead, and what did he create? The heavens and the earth. Sometimes we think only earth, right? We think, but we, and we've always thought, well, heaven is eternal like God is eternal. No, God created the heavenly realm too. And there are creatures in that heavenly realm that you have never seen. He's created not just the earth, but the heavens. Later on, in page one still of your Bible, you're going to meet other characters called humans. And we are, you can actually sort of be led to believe that these are the only characters that are playing out in history, God and humans. But that assumption, that conclusion would be wrong. For example, in Genesis 3.24, third chapter, records this, at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's like guardian warriors, not chubby little baby angels, right? Cherubs. These are cherubim, incredible creatures. In Ezekiel, I'm going to actually read from Ezekiel chapter 1, and I want you to hear this description of four living creatures. They had a human likeness. Each had four faces. And each had four wings. So the, the picture here is a single head that has a face on each side of the head. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. They sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. Each had a human face looking straight. I'm just reading scripture but also had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. You have never seen those. But they exist. And here's, and here's what we have to remember. Uh, if you saw something like this, you would be tempted, as you see in the New Testament on occasion, to worship it. Because it is so impressive and probably beautiful and fearful. God is greater than that. This is one of his creations, and he's greater than this. In Ezekiel 10, Ezekiel writes, there were four wheels, four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were in a wheel. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes, their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around. These are living creatures that looks like a wheel inside of a wheel. And it's alive. And every one had four faces. The first was the face of the cherub and the second face was a human face and the third the face of a lion and the fourth the face of an eagle. Even John, the apostle of love, 
in Revelation 4-7 sees this. He says, The first living creature was like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. There are other creatures called seraphim. You see those in, in Isaiah 6, and they're flying with six wings around the throne of God, and they are singing what? They're singing. They're worshiping holy, holy, holy. These amazing creatures who are still attributing to God an absolute uniqueness. We're part of an amazing world, aren't we? With amazing creatures. Uh, some of which we can see. The sunset moth. The Siberian tiger. The swallow-tailed hummingbird. Many creatures you cannot see. And not, and not, to, not, to, not to create any kind of fear, um, those creatures exist right now, and some of them are in this place. Right? Um, no, the devil is not afraid of even the most holy of gatherings. He entered into Judas, Judas when? While they were celebrating the Passover, and Jesus introduced communion to his disciples. Okay, so we've got to get out of our mind that somehow... Uh, the, the, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour is, is somehow far away and out of tune with who we are personally. Now, the devil is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time. So for me to think he's actually in this place right now, I don't believe that. Okay, but there is a, there is a host of other spirit beings. So when all that to say this... When God's Word then warns us about other creatures in a spiritual realm that seek to undermine us, that actually want to target us and take us down, we should listen. We shouldn't just pass it off as, as strange fantasy. But we must keep the focus Jesus gave to His disciples. In Luke chapter 10, uh, it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And they have to be. But Jesus said to them, listen to what he says. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's where our rejoicing should be. That's who it's focused on. So when we get into this passage on standing strong and putting on the whole armor of God, it is not about us being these awesome warriors. It is, it is about relationship. You rejoice in this fact. Your names are written in heaven. And if you are children of that kingdom, you will live like it. So three imperatives of Ephesians 6. Be strong. Put on the whole armor of God, verse 11. And stand, verse 14. We'll look at two of those this morning. Be strong in the Lord. Look at verse 10. Finally, the letter comes down to this conclusion. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Okay, in the midst of a continual spiritual warfare with wicked forces, our struggle is not ultimately with humans. We've got to make this point. If in your bitterness all you have identified is the human character in your drama, you have not properly defined the enemy yet. If in your anger or your frustration or your abuse, if all you have done is focused on a human character, you have, you, you have not fully identified the enemy that has is, that is, that is leveled attacks against you. 
This is why Paul tells the church at Corinth, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Behind evil people are evil spirits. Now, the human being is still responsible, and we'll give an account for that, but there is a whole other world that Ephesians 6 is opening up to us, finally. And how do we respond to that? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And this indicates, I want you to just look down at the words, be strong, and look at that next, look at that next phrase, in the Lord. Meaning the power does not come. The source of power is not from you. You don't just need to be stronger and tough it out. Okay, there's, there's, there's an external source of power that a believer has access to. In the Lord refers to Christ. This is the consistent use of that title throughout the entire letter. The particulars of this strength are further explained. Look at the next phrase. In the strength of his might. And this is not some magical power as Simon thought in Acts chapter 8. It's not some, he even said, you know, give me this power so that when I lay hands on people, uh, I can do this as well. And, and Peter said, let your silver perish with you. And he, and he highlighted that this, this wrong understanding of the Holy Spirit's power. He highlighted that Simon was in the grip of bitterness. It had distorted his focus on the source of real power, who is a right relationship with God. The goal is a life of obedience in relation to God. Look at, look at verse 6.10 again. The word translated with these, with these four words, strength of his might, is the same word. I want you to go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, so strength of his might is the same word translated, the same single word translated with other words, chapter 1 verse 19, as the working of his great might. In his prayer, we're going to include that phrase, uh, beginning in verse, halfway through verse 19, chapter 1, it says, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to, here's the phrase, the working of his great might. That's the power we have access to. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ. Okay, what does that power look like? When he raised him from the dead and seated him at, at his right hand in the heavenly places. And, and this is beautiful how it continues because these same things are going to be mentioned in Ephesians 6. Look at verse 21. Okay, so Christ, that resurrection power, that ascension power, he is far above than what? All rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Go back to Ephesians 6. This is why the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Philippi, will pray this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says this, relationally, that I may know Him. Experientially. And then he follows it with this. And the power of His resurrection. We pray for that, just as Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 and also in Ephesians 3. These powers of darkness listed have already been listed in chapter 1 as under Christ's authority. So there is nothing to fear. To, to be seized by fear is one of Satan's tricks. It's one of his schemes. The kind of strength we have access to completely changes the battle. So you've got to think of it this way. We are not fighting for victory. Now daily, daily we face things and there is, there's a sense of victory in that skirmish. 
But we are, we are actually, as believers, fighting from victory. Uh, an illustration that's often, often used is uh, a World War II illustration when the Allied forces in World War II landed in France on June 6, 1944. The dates are going to help us understand something. That was the decisive event that ensured victory on the Western Front. However, for the next 11 months, the Allied forces had to still battle the Germans until the Germans finally surrendered on May 5, 1945. Basically, the war had already been won. They are fighting from victory, but they're still taking casualties. There, there are people that are still dying and being hurt in battle, and they still had to move forward. Ultimate victory was never in doubt. They were fighting from victory, not necessarily for victory. The same is true with us. When Christ rose from the dead, I mean, this is resurrection power. The, the battle's over. Okay? But now we're waiting, and we're, we're sort of like these insurgents on the fringe of the kingdom. We're waiting until Jesus Christ returns. That's one of the things the Scripture says about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father waiting for something. The battle's basic, the battle's done, it's decided. It's not done, it's decided. He is waiting at the right hand of the Father for his enemies to become his footstool. It's already done, they've already lost. So we are in the middle of that kind of a timeline. And it's fierce. Okay, so I'm going to push again, I'm just going to take two minutes to push against a common modern view of Jesus. And that view is this, that he is, that he is good but weak. The armor wording, the warrior wording in Ephesians 6 is taken, borrowed heavily from the prophet Isaiah. In the midst of this book of the Old Testament, Isaiah, and I'm just going to, Isaiah 63, I don't want you to turn there, but I want you to hear this. This is a pre-incarnate, a, before Jesus was born, this is Christ. There's a question. Who is this who comes from Edom, from the city of Bozrah, with his clothing stained red? Right? So there's this figure, and he's dripping in blood. Who is this in royal robes, marching in his great strength? The answer? It is I, the Lord, announcing your salvation. It is I, the Lord, who has the power to save. So there should be no doubt as to the identity of this individual, this this battle-stained warrior. Why are your clothes so red? As if you have been treading out grapes. He responds, I have been treading the winepress alone. No one was there to help me. In my anger, I have trampled my enemies as if they were grapes. In my fury, I have trampled my foes. Their blood has stained my clothes, for the time has come for me to avenge my people, to ransom them from their oppressors. I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So I myself stepped in to save them with my strong arm, and my wrath sustained me. I crushed the nations in my anger and made them stagger and fall to the ground, spilling their blood upon the earth. And a couple hundred years later, he would be born in Bethlehem as a baby. He is not weak. So finally, brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord. 
Our failures can be attributed primarily to us trusting in our own strength. Trying even at our strongest, we are not strong. John said this of the Messiah's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Yes, he came to save from sin. But in the process, part of that is crushing the serpent's head of Genesis chapter 3. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That same disciple, he wrote that in 1 John 3, verse 8. In Revelation, when he sees the ascended Christ, remember, it's that resurrecting and ascending power. When he sees Christ in Revelation 1, remember, this man walked with Jesus for about three and a half years. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Wait a minute. A couple months before, he was leaning on Jesus. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. It's incredible power, unmatched power. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of that might, his might. His might has no limit. That's, that's basically the what. Okay, so as Paul's concluding his letter, what are we to do? You are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. How, okay, how do we do that? That's the next question he's going to answer. Put on God's armor. Look at, look at verse 11, chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. This, by the way, this mirrors, if you would, it recalls a command back in Ephesians 4.24 when it says to put on the new self. Same imagery of putting on clothing. Put on the new self created to be like God in true holiness and righteousness. We are tasked with the responsibility. It's an external source of power that we have access to, but we are tasked with the responsibility to put this on, to live this out. The term whole armor, um, if, you, if you see that there in verse 11, is only used three times in the entire New Testament. Twice here in Ephesians 6, we are told to put on all of it the full, complete armor of God. The only other use is found in Luke. I want to read that. Luke chapter 11, verse 20 to 22. These are Jesus' words. He says this, But but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. You You remember the accusation. He cast out demons by what power? By the prince of demons. Jesus' response, No, that's not the case. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, here's the term, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Complete, full battle readiness. That's the idea. We are to put that on. Next week, we're going to find out what those individual pieces are. They're not really pieces. They're attributes of God's character, which we will see next week. But for now... What I want us to connect again is this warrior image and this all armor is sunk down deep into the prophet Isaiah. Let me read to you Isaiah 11, verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. Okay, who is that talking about? God, Yahweh. And faithfulness, the belt of his loins. In Isaiah 59, 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. What that Old Testament background suggests then is that the armor that we put on 
is God's armor. It's not, it's not like an, our, our own little handcrafted sword. It's not our own sort of designer label shield. It's not a ministry philosophy. Okay? It is God's armor, God's character. Which means when we get into these individual pieces, it is talking about our identification with God. Okay, so put on the whole armor. We're going to finish that thought because it explains it in the, in the following verses next week. So, the what is, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. The how is, put on the whole armor of God. And here's why. And this is where we're going to, we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Here is the why. Look at, look at the second part of verse 11. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay, so what? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. How? Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you know that the Scripture provides no biography of the devil? It doesn't even, it doesn't even talk about really the day that the devil was created. Remember, he is a created individual. No account of the origin of dark forces. It only assumes it. Okay? He's a real person. He has a real entity and he has real tactics. No battles are the same. So this is going to help us understand right here at the end of this letter and the beginning of this closing passage what kind of battle we are facing. And that will help, right? Sun Tzu in his classic book, Art of War, said this, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. What God is allowing us to do right here is to identify the primary enemy. The devil exists, he is active, and he schemes. And his schemes are always planted in lies. There's, there's a deceptive element to this. And by the way, nobody likes to be deceived. No one. Um, John 8.44, Jesus said specifically that the devil has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. Okay, so let me just give you a few of his schemes. Here, here's one of his very effective schemes right now, possibly in somebody's heart in this building. What could be more crafty than to convince people he is a fairy tale? That he doesn't even exist? That, it, that it's so ridiculous, it's like he wears this red jumpsuit with horns and a tail and carries a pitchfork. I mean, that's ludicrous. That, that is so insane. That's one of his tactics. The most dangerous enemy is the one you don't even know is there. The one you don't even believe could be outside your gates. What fear and confusion if he could convince people he is God's equal? So on one hand, he's convinced a whole generation that he doesn't even exist. No enemy, no need to resist the enemy. Therefore, you can, you can imagine the downfall of that specific generation or generations. But what fear and confusion if we actually think there is a type of dualism, that the battle isn't decided, that God and Satan are equals, that there is this battle of light and darkness. And we're not really sure who's going to win. Because what that lie would do, that lie would incite fear. And we would be paralyzed and crippled by a fear of this individual. Also a lie. What a victory if he can cause us to doubt God's word and character. 
even if he can't convince us he is equal to God, or even if he can't pull, sort of pull the wool over our eyes and convince us he doesn't exist at all, what if he could convince us to question God's character and his word? It's exactly what you see in the Garden of Eden. Did God, did God really say that? No, he can't be good if he's keeping that from you. Did God? No, he didn't say that. What he meant was, and he spins it and it's a lie. Jesus said there is no truth in him. What if Satan could paralyze some in here this morning with, with hopeless, hopeless failure, shame, and regret? And you're imprisoned under shame and guilt. That too is a lie because there is always hope in Christ's forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what's interesting in, this, in, in, these, th- in these three verses we're looking at this morning? We are never told to attack the devil. We're never told to storm his castle or advance against him. We are simply told to what? Stand. In unity and love and truth. By the way, this letter is written to who? Not to all Ephesians, right? Even though it's called the letter to the Ephesians. To a church that exists in Ephesus. The church stands together. The church is... This is the importance of unity is not just that we get along. The importance of unity is it is part of our combined sort of our team stand against the attacks, against the lies of Satan. Matter of fact, in in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul calls the church the pillar and ground, the support of truth. Would we be better off without the church? No. The truth must be proclaimed. The truth must be announced because for the next For the next six days, Monday through Saturday, you will hear, even through conservative news networks and non-conservative news networks and sitcoms and even good shows, you will hear the lies of the devil whispered into your ears through several different venues. It is important we gather together and we stand together. Why? We are in close quarter struggle with a cunning opponent. Look at verse 12. For or because we do not wrestle, we do not hand-to-hand grapple against flesh and blood, not primarily, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Okay, what word in that verse is used four times? I just want you to refocus on the text. What word? Well, there's a lot of big words in there. It's the word against. Uh, and and this, brings, this brings back to what the original readers would have understood about battle. It, battle involved getting eyeball to eyeball where you saw the whites of your opponent's eyes. What God is reminding us is that your real struggle is close at hand. It is as though you are grappling with one another and he is trying to throw you to the mat, not just for a point, but to kill you. That's what jujitsu was. Some of you have studied that particular art. Uh, there, w- there was no such thing when, when that art originated as sport jujitsu. Right now it is. What sport jujitsu really was, was judo, was the offshoot of jujitsu. Jujitsu was only and always meant to kill your opponent. The samurai soldier, if the battle got so close that he couldn't even use his sword anymore, would then fall back to killing his opponent with his hands. 
with a throw, with a chokehold, with something. Always meant to be lethal. That's the picture you have here. It's the word against. Let me read it again, and I'll emphasize that word. For because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, they're involved in the drama, right? People hurt people. Humans kill humans. But that's not primarily what you're wrestling with. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against, picture that, you're holding your opponent close, eyeball to eyeball, hand to hand combat, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Again, uh, Sun Tzu in his book, Art of War, I think of, I think of Satan's tactics when I read some of his descriptions of his tactics. Listen to, what he, listen to how he would train his soldiers. He says, be extremely subtle, even to the point of formlessness. Be extremely mysterious, even to the point of soundlessness. Thereby, you can be the director of the opponent's fate. Kind of describes the enemy we're up against. He's formless to us. He's soundless to us. He's mysterious. He goes on and he says, engage people with what they expect. I want you to hear this because we're, we're, we're warned against the devil and his tactics, his schemes. He says this, engage people with what they expect. It is what they are able to discern and confirms their projections. It settles them into predictable patterns of response, occupying their minds while you wait for the extraordinary moment, that moment which they cannot anticipate. You know what the devil does? He's going to come and attack you like he always does today on those same three lines. And you're ready for that. You've got five memory verses for each of those sins that he's going to, to flaunt before you. And I've heard it put this way before. The second most patient being in the world is Satan. He's okay if he can't destroy you today. He'll wait 10 years. He'll wait 20 years. He is waiting, as Sun Tzu said, for that extraordinary moment. He's going to keep pressing where you normally know that attack is going to be. And he's waiting for that extraordinary moment, that moment which we do not anticipate. Therefore, stand, and you stand together, and you put on the whole armor of God. You know, evil rarely looks evil until it subtly creeps in, even as something beautiful and accomplishes its awful goal. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual evil forces... Ephesians 1 puts forward this amazing truth. Christ, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet. So you be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. All these forces are already subject to Him. I want to conclude uh, with some of the responses and ways that Jesus exampled to us of how to deal with this kind of a world. Matter of fact, when people heard his teaching, they said in Mark chapter 1, 27, a new teaching and with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Isn't that a beautiful reminder? In Matthew chapter 4, also recorded in Luke, after 40 days of fasting, which means Jesus was physically weak, he is sent out into the wilderness by the Spirit. So this, this is God's intention. He goes out into the wilderness 
where he is attacked by none other than Satan himself. The devil comes and launches an attack against him. Now remember, these opponents are not equal. Jesus could have, with a single word, defeated his opponent. But what's happening in the wilderness is so much bigger than what we have come to expect. This isn't like the first confrontation of these guys, like, you know, Rocky has to face him later on in the movie and finally take him down, right? That's not what's going on here. You have the Son of God, the warrior. Why are your clothes stained with blood? That's who's in the wilderness against the devil. But what the devil is trying to do is to keep him from his mission. And what Jesus is doing is exampling to you and me how to resist the devil. So the first line of attack, if, you, if you're truly the Son of God, that sounds like what he whispered to Eve, doesn't it? Did God really... If you're, if you're really who you say you are, just turn those stones into bread. Let me ask you, in any other situation, would that have been a sin? Didn't Jesus change water into wine? And then it was the beginning of His signs, the beginning of His miracles, and it was a good thing. Why not now? See, what, what Satan is doing, Satan is, he is coming down the line of hunger a little bit. That's the natural. But the spiritual is, I want you to do something wrong to prove to me that you're really the Son of God. That was the trap. And what did Jesus do? And, and we need to know this because what he does is example to you and me what it looks like to resist the devil. We don't march around the church seven times like this is some Jericho and we drive out the strongholds of Satan and we all get in our white robes and we march around the church. By the way, people have done that in, in recent church history and it is stupid. Okay, stupid. Jesus showed you how to resist the devil. It is written. And he quotes out of Deuteronomy. Okay, next temptation takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple, right? You know, all, you know, all three attacks, right? And, and, and he says, I can give you all these kingdoms if you would what? Bow down and worship me. So in a sense, Satan was not lying. In a sense, Satan as the prince and the power of the air, as the kingdom of this present darkness, he owns it. Here, here's, here's the line of attack. Jesus, you don't have to suffer and be tortured and die for these kingdoms that your Father promised you, I'll give them to you. And what does Jesus say? It is. It is written. And then Satan, he took it out of context, right? He says, you know, if you cast yourself down, even the angels will take care of you. By the way, he quoted Scripture perfectly, but he quoted it out of context. So Jesus said, it is written again, and he places that truth back into context. Assault after assault after assault, and all three times he doesn't do anything sensational. He doesn't call brimstone out of heaven. He doesn't call up these cherubim or seraphim or these wheels within wheels. He doesn't even call on Michael the archangel. He simply says what? It is written. It is written. It is written again. And it is written. You be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might, which, which there is it's limitless. And, and you put on the whole armor of God that He has provided. We're going to see what that looks like next week. And you stand. Why is that so important? Because there really is this individual called the devil. And there really are dark spiritual forces. And he is scheming. And he will scheme again right now to try to take away the seed of the word that was preached. 
Jesus even said that. He's like a bird that will come down and take it away from your heart. One of the most striking illustrations of Jesus, other than, other than confronting Satan himself, is when he went and confronted the Gerasene demoniac in Mark 5. Remember this guy? He comes over in a boat. This guy's living among the tombs. He's broken these chains that the villagers have put him in. He's cutting himself. Incredible strength. He's naked. Nobody wants to go near him. Just leave him alone. All right, just let him stay up there. Matter of fact, it protected this sort of uh, the breaking of the law by them raising pigs on that particular area. So he was this demon possessed guy was a pretty nice, you know, repellent from anybody, any, any real Jews who wanted to come over and expel the, the pig farmers, if you would. Jesus starts interacting with this guy. Finds out his name is Legion. You remember the story. For we are many. You know what he does? Legion confesses the true identity of Jesus. He says, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And then he asks permission. That's what you have to do when you're in the Lord's presence. Please send us out. Let us go into the pigs. Jesus is only in human form. The disciples are seeing this. He confronts this incredibly dark spiritual force. They, they, they recognize him for who he is and they ask his permission because he is still their Lord, though he is not their Savior. This is exactly what we're going to be told in Philippians. That at the name of Jesus, what? Every, every knee will bow. Satan will bow. Every knee. Every, everything, every spiritual force, every ruler, every power, every dominion is already under his power. The demons know it. On another occasion, have you come to torment us before our time? Demons don't know everything. They do know this, that Jesus is the King of Kings. They do know this, there's a type of torment and judgment waiting them. Jesus delivers this man who was naked, living among the tombs, cutting himself extremely powerful, and we see him restored to peace. I love how Scripture says it. He was restored to peace, clothed, and in his right mind. Jesus didn't come and preach a sermon on dress code. The Gospel in person confronted this man, and he was changed. And you know what? The villagers didn't like it. Matter of fact, they came... And they, they tried kicking Jesus out. That, that to me is another very disturbing part of that narrative. Right? Wow, look at this power. I mean, just change this man. We don't have to live in fear anymore. No, Jesus, you need to leave the area. That's the kind of transforming power that he has. So, by the way, that, that man in illustrative form that had, that had legion and is now at peace with Jesus, at peace with himself, his, his deliverance illustrates the ministry of Jesus we can all enjoy through the gospel of Jesus. That's the good news for every soul here this morning. And thankfully, you're not afflicted by legion. But you can still have that same gospel experience by confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what we're going to do when we move now to to dispersing and, and waiting and eating these elements together. We are, we are remembering something. And remember what John said in 1 John 3, verse 8. He said this, The Son of God came into the world to destroy something. 
To save us, yes, but to destroy the works of the devil. This morning, that can be part of what we're remembering. The, the, the amazing power of our Lord Jesus Christ over every other being. Colossians 2, 13-15 says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ. Okay, how did He do that? Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen to verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's the power of the cross. That's the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the resurrecting and ascending power of God. Let's pray.